During my time in seminary, we would play basketball on Saturday mornings at my church. And it was a mix of people that would come. It would be friends uh, from the church. It would be friends from the office, friends from the neighborhood. Once in a while, we'd get a seminary student. But then one Saturday, one of my seminary professors showed up to play basketball. Now, I knew how to relate to Dr. Belcher in the classroom. But now, how was I supposed to relate to him on the basketball court? There was this tension inside. Am I allowed to post him up and take him to school? Or was I supposed to be easy on him? I knew this, that I would address him as Dr. Belcher. So, you know, we're playing, and, and he actually was, he was pretty good. Wore a cool set of goggles. It was awesome. And he, he started draining shots. I'm like, Dr. Belcher, good shot. And, and a couple times after I addressed him that way, he came over to me and said, hey, Keith, you can call me by my first name out here. So I was faced with this tension. Do I relate to Dr. Belcher as the authority figure in the classroom as my professor, or do I relate to him as a friend on the basketball court in a pickup game? How do you relate to Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? This triumphal entry in Luke 19 is at the center of that question. Because Jesus rides into Jerusalem as a king. Why is it so important that you relate to or understand Jesus as king? How are you supposed to relate to him as king? How are you to respond to him as king? These are the questions we're answering in Jesus' triumphal entry. And we're going to look at the, the need for a king, the nature of the king, and then responding to the king. So let's start with the need for a king. Why does Jesus send two disciples ahead to find this colt so that Jesus can ride in on it? Well, the simple answer is because God had promised this hundreds and thousands of years earlier through prophecy. In fact, as early as Genesis 49, Genesis chapter 49, this moment of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, was prophesied. Verses 10 to 11 of Genesis 49, the scepter, meaning uh, that, that staff or the symbol of sovereignty that a king would hold, his authority, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, meaning that the Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. And then years later, the prophet Zechariah would prophesy of this moment that we read in Luke 19. Zechariah 9.9. 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem was the fulfillment of hundreds and thousands of years of prophecy. The promised king had finally come. 
But that was after many years of failed leaders in Israel's history. In Genesis 3, as early as Genesis 3, right after sin moves in and begins to destroy God's world, God announces to Adam and Eve, I am going to send a Messiah. I'm going to send a king. The problem is, in between Luke 19 and, and Genesis 3, there was a long succession, succession of leaders in Israel's history that failed to bring the lasting salvation that they were longing for. Starting with Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob, then Joseph, then Moses, then Joshua, then the judges, then the kings. In fact, if you've been participating in community Bible reading, we've been reading through First and Second Kings. And it's this book that describes Israel's kings and every one of Israel's kings who failed to bring lasting salvation was some mix of, 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 of evil and some mix of good. In fact, you had some kings that just are described as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Other kings that were described as doing right in the Lord's eyes, but they didn't remove the high places of worship. So they would, do, they would seem to be following the Lord, but then they had idol worship going on. And this was going on all throughout Israel's history. And these kings, these human kings, could not bring the, the lasting salvation that God's people needed. They failed. And all of these human kings were pointing to this moment when the true king, true human and divine king, Jesus Christ, comes onto the scene and rides into Jerusalem you and I have a strong need to be led. That's the story of the scripture, starting with Israel in the Old Testament all the way to the church now. You and I have a strong need to be led. You and I have a strong desire to be led. There's a number of examples of this. One happens every four years in our country. The presidential election, right? Millions and millions of dollars are spent to get a candidate into office. Character maligning mud is slung in debates, on social media, in family dens. Uh, values and morality is compromised to get the Savior into office, the one who's going to fix our education and fix our economy and fix our social problems and fix our national security. And what happens every four years the morning after the election? Roughly half of America is elated because in the next four years, all those problems are going to be solved. And half of America, roughly, is moving their money to offshore accounts and planning on leaving the country because in the next four years, the country's going to fall apart. We all have a strong desire to be led. Now, you say, I don't, presidential elections. Well, listen, you can't say that you don't care how your boss leads you at work. Or you can't say you don't care about your coach or your, or your teacher. Or We have a strong desire to be led. Why? Because we are created beings who are designed to be led. We have a strong need for a king. The problem is that when we put all of our trust on a human king or a human leader, we are bound to be disappointed because every leader, every human king will fail. The president will fail you. The governor will fail you. The mayor will fail you. Your teacher will fail you. Your coach will fail you. Your boss will fail you. Children, your parents will fail you. We need a king that transcends human kings. 
And that's what Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is all about. It's about the true king who transcends all human kings. And now that's not to say that human leadership is not important. It's not to say that God doesn't appoint human leadership. It's just saying we need a transcendent king that transcends all of our human leadership and our human kings. Why is it so important for you to understand Jesus as king? First, because you need a king that transcends all of the human kings, human leaders in your lives. Second, what's the nature of this king that transcends the human kings in your lives? Two characteristics dominate this triumphal entry about King Jesus. The first characteristic that just dominates this triumphant entry is that he's a gentle king. He's a gentle king. You know, in ancient times, when a king would ride into a city, oftentimes, most of the time, they would ride in with a show of power and a show of wealth. And yet here we have Jesus riding in with no pomp and circumstance but with all humility and meekness. Even Zechariah prophesied that. Your king's coming to you humble, gentle. Even his mode of transformation or transportation cried out that fact. He didn't ride in on a war horse or a stallion with an army around him, which is what most kings would do going into a city. He rode in on a donkey. And I borrowed one at that. Everything about Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem was surrounded by humility, that he's a gentle king. The prophet Isaiah says it this way when he speaks of Jesus, speaks of the coming Messiah in Isaiah 42, three. He says, a bruised reed he will not break. In a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. The gentleness and the tenderness of King Jesus. This past fall, a, a pediatric neurosurgeon in Nova Scotia was getting ready to perform a surgery on a, a young eight-year-old boy. He had a cyst on the brain and he had a condition that was known as hydrocephalus. And so this surgery was going to drain the fluid off his brain and, and relieve the pressure on his brain. And as this little boy is being wheeled into surgery, he's holding on to his stuffed animal. And he looks the doctor in the eye and he says, my bear is ripped. Will you sew him up? Now here's this doctor, pediatric neurosurgeon. This kid is being rolled in to receive surgery that's going to help him live, brain surgery. And the doctor looked at the boy and he assured him and said, yes, I'll stitch up your bear. He performs the surgery on this eight-year-old boy. And when he's done, he puts the bear on the table. He puts the blue gloves on and he takes the stitches left over from the surgery he had just performed and he stitches up this little boy's bear. All-powerful doctor just performed a neurosurgery on the brain, but cared deeply about this little boy and his bear and his stuffed animal. Jesus Christ is a gentle king. He's a tender king. A bruised reed he will not break. 
a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And yet as gentle and as tender as King Jesus is, he is at the same time all-powerful. And that's the second characteristic that dominates this triumphal entry. He's gentle. He rides in on a donkey, but he makes a king's entrance. There's no question about it. He's riding in as an all-powerful, sovereign king. And the people see it. The people get it. They understand this is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9. They knew that King Solomon in the Old Testament rode in on a donkey when he was inaugurated as king. The signal is clear and the people respond clear, clearly. They lay down cloaks on the road. Other gospels say palm branches were waved and they start shouting from Psalm 118, blessed is the king who come in the name of the Lord. The king has come. You know, some people read through the gospels and maybe you read through and, and, and you can get here or you can see how somebody would get here and see that as you read the gospels, it can almost read as though Jesus is a victim. That he's a victim and evil is, is acting upon him and it certainly crescendos in this last week of his life. Jesus was never a victim. He was in full control of everything happening. In fact, his move to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey was pushing the timetable of the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling council that was trying to get rid of him. He's changing their timetable. He's in full control of what's happening. It's on his timetable and his father's timetable. And everyone's answering to that. And then, of course, this becomes abundantly clear in Jesus' conversation with Pilate right before he's crucified. He's been flogged, and I'll spare you the details of what flogging was. He's been beaten. He is covered in blood standing before Pilate. All outward appearances say, look at this poor victim that's about to be crucified. And listen to the interchange he has with Pilate. Pilate says to him, where are you from? And Jesus doesn't answer him. And then Pilate says, you will not speak to me? Do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Power and gentleness. It's a rare combination. And yet it's a combination that every one of us has longed for since we were a child. You've longed for a father that was big and strong and could do anything. But at the same time, when that father dealt with you, you wanted him to be tender and compassionate. You long for a police officer that is big and strong in your neighborhood to handle any of the neighborhood bullies and take them down. And yet you wanted a police officer that would hoist you on his shoulders and take you back to your parents' house when you got lost in the crowd. We long for power and gentleness. And that's exactly who Jesus is. That's what the gospels describe him to be is all powerful, all sovereign, able to fix a problem, and yet completely gentle and completely tender and completely passionate. 
That's what we see in his healings. When Jesus heals in the gospels, when he brings supernatural healing, most of the time he did it with a touch. He could have waved his hand, didn't even have to wave his hand. He could think, he could have healed from a distance and a few times he does that. But most of the time when he heals, he would touch intimately the person he was healing. Powerful picture of power and gentleness coming together. And this crescendos at the cross. In his power, he put an end to the evil and sin in your heart. And yet in gentleness, he did it without crushing you. In power, he put an end to your evil and your sin. And yet in gentleness, he did it without crushing you because he himself was crushed in your place. Question is, how do you respond to such a king? How do you respond to such a powerful and such a gentle king? There are three responses to Jesus' triumphal entry in this passage. The first one is in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. That's a quote from Habakkuk chapter two. And that's a chapter that is all about judgment. That this first response we see here is one of outright rejection from a hardened heart. The rejection is spelled out in verse 44, because you did not know the time of your visitation. In other words, he's saying you rejected my compassionate and gentle visit in the person of my son, Jesus, to rescue you. And because of that, there's gonna be judgment. And the judgment that's spelled out here in verses 43 to 44 came to fruition in AD 70 when Jerusalem was destroyed. And it's judgment language in verses 43 and 44 that is harsh. So harsh that it might cause some of you to recoil. Wait a minute, how could a God of love and a God of compassion and a God of gentleness bring this kind of harsh judgment? And what I want you to hear is this, that every one of us actually longs for judgment. Let me explain it. You have a longing to see the evil in this world and the injustice in this world removed. Every one of us has a longing to see evil and injustice removed. That's what God's judgment is. God's judgment is simply his commitment to remove what does not belong in his world, to remove the sin and to remove the evil. If you reject Jesus, as the Pharisees did with a hard heart. If you reject Jesus, you are signing up to face judgment on your own. And that means that God's commitment to remove evil and sin means to remove you. But if you have trusted Jesus Christ, if you've trusted Christ, your evil and your sin is placed on Jesus so that when he died on the cross, he took judgment for you so that you don't experience that judgment. So the first response we see here is a, is a hardened response of outright rejection. Second response to King Jesus is seen in verses 37 and 38. The crowds are praising Jesus with great joy. 
They're shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You, know, you read this and go, wow, what a wonderful reception. I mean, this is an amazing reception of King Jesus. The problem is these same crowds and these same people one week later were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Well, they had it right that he was the Messiah. And they had it right that he was the king, but they had the wrong kind of Messiah and the wrong kind of king. They saw Jesus as a political Messiah. They thought Jesus was coming to free them from the, the oppression of Rome, to set them up as an independent great nation again. They saw Jesus as a political Messiah that was gonna give them what they wanted, which was freedom and prosperity. Not too different from what we look for in a political leader. Freedom, prosperity. I've labeled this false reception from a selfish heart, this is a lot harder to detect because this kind of reception of Jesus can be accompanied with a lot of religious activity. This kind of reception can be accompanied by Bible studies, church attendance, prayer. But at the center of this reception is something that is drastically wrong. And that is that self is still on the throne. And so Jesus exists to help you meet your dreams. Jesus exists to help you accomplish your goals. Jesus exists to help you see all your plans come to fruition. And yet the, the fundamental thing that happens at conversion is this, that, that self on the throne steps down and recognizes that Jesus is on the throne. And so instead of Jesus orbiting around self on the throne, self orbits around Jesus on the throne. So the second response we see here is that it's a, it's a hard one to detect, but it's a, it's a false reception of a fabricated Jesus, of a man-made Jesus that exists just to feed me and make my life easier and make my life more comfortable. And in the end, that's rejection because that's not the Jesus of the scriptures. That's a, fa that's a fabricated Jesus. That brings us to the third response. Verse 33. So as Jesus' disciples begin untying the colt, the owners ask, why are you untying our colt? In verse 34, they say, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Now, in verse 30, Luke makes it clear that this is a donkey, a colt that had never been ridden before. It was an unbroken colt. It was a new colt. And in that day, colts or donkeys, that was a mode of transportation. That's how you got around. It would be the equivalent today of a car. So imagine driving a brand new car off the lot and you get it home and your friend calls you and says, hey, my car broke down. Can I borrow your car? It's a brand new colt. Now, we don't know what the relationship was like between the owners and Jesus, but we do know this as we look at the gospel accounts of this, that the owners did know Jesus. They knew who he was. And so when they heard that the Lord Jesus, the King Jesus, needed their colt, 
They're new, unbroken colt. No questions asked. Absolutely. This third response I've called the, the true acceptance from a surrendered heart. It's the, the Lord has need of it. What are you holding on to that the Lord has need of? Now, it's a little bit of an ironic question. Here's why. The Lord doesn't need anything from you. <laughs> King Jesus owns it all. So even when you think it's yours, it's his, right? King Jesus owns it all. If you in selfishness hold on to your money and, and don't give it to the church that he is building, or if you in selfishness hold on to your time and don't give it to the church and the kingdom that Jesus is building, or if you hold on to uh, your talents selfishly and don't use them for the building of the kingdom and the church that Jesus is building, King Jesus' plan is not gonna be thwarted. Let's just be clear about that. But your joy, the joy of participating in Christ's work, the joy of building and being a part of building his kingdom in partnership with him, your joy will be thwarted. You'll fail to experience the joy of, of all of you being surrendered to King Jesus and participating in his work. Years ago, John Koss, he's a columnist for the Chicago Tribune, and he wrote a column on this, uh, this man whose name was Bouch, and he was a waiter in a Chicago tavern. And Bouch decided that he was gonna write a letter to the king of his homeland, which was Morocco. Because the, the king of Morocco, King Muhammad VI, was, was really a popular king because he would interact with his subjects in public all the time. So super powerful king of a nation, you know, free political prisoners and, and, and get after big systemic helps in his country of the, of the poor, but he was known to be very relational with his subjects. And so, so Bouch wrote a letter and John Cost, the columnist, got word of this. And of course, true to his nature, Bouch got a personal letter back from the king of Morocco, from King Mohammed VI. And as he was interacting with this columnist, he showed him the letters. He said, look at the letters. Look at the letter from the king. Boy, if I meet him, I'll be so happy. So John Koss was so thrown off by this that he, he reached out to the, the general council of Morocco that was in Chicago to say, what's going on here? And this, and this uh, general council guy said, yeah, th this is normal. This is normal. The, the king loves to write to his subjects you know, that are out of the country. It's normal. And, and then he... He said this, he said, yeah, it happens a lot. He loves his subjects. He loves his people. King Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, nearly 2,000 years ago rode into Jerusalem because he loves his subjects. He loves his people. He loves you. And one week later from riding into Jerusalem, 
He gave his life for you and he's written you precious letters in his word. He's a gentle king. He's a powerful king, worthy of all your allegiance. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on this Palm Sunday, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus, you rode into Jerusalem as a humble, gentle, but powerful king. That nearly a week later, you were bloodied and beaten and hanging on a cross because you loved your people so much. And Father, we sit in a room like this nearly 2,000 years later, recipients of your love expressed supremely through Jesus. Such a rare combination of power and gentleness, and yet that, Jesus, is who you are. And we are grateful. And we're thankful that, Jesus, you prepare a meal for us called the Lord's Supper that is a foretaste of what will come when you return one day. But we pray that as we now enjoy this meal, that we as your people, you as our king, that we would receive grace, that we would be nourished, that we would be filled with your goodness and with your grace. And we pray this all in your precious name. Amen.